Hi, how are you doing? I've just pulled up in my car, not far from a huge Tudor red brick country house with a right of way running through its parkland. I want to go and have a look at it. And as I switched off the engine, a little black and white doggy face appeared in my rear view mirror and looked at me as if to say, why aren't we getting out? As you can hear, it was raining very heavily. It's now easing a little bit just as I speak, which is great because recording equipment and rain do not mix. My name's Melissa Harrison and I'm a novelist and nature writer who lives in rural Suffolk. Through autumn, I'm going to help you keep in touch with the natural world and the changing seasons. Welcome to episode 22 of The Stubborn Light of Things. side of the road, quite a busy road actually, you can hear the traffic. And I'm about to go through a set of iron gates that are painted dark red, they're covered in moss and lichen and they're part of what looks like it was a gatehouse and it's now a cottage. Come on Scout, where'd you come? You can do it. It looks entirely private, and if it wasn't for the footpath sign, I definitely wouldn't have wouldn't have done that. Sit. Let's let you off. Go on then. On the ground underneath my feet, there are lots of horse chestnut leaves. Here yeah, really has turned, and they are often the first to fall because they're one of the first trees to leaf. But also, when they're attacked by leaf miner moths, they can go brown and fall early. These, though, they, they look like they've fallen naturally to me. It's been very windy. I suspect a lot of leaves that were just hanging on have come off now. Now it looks like the route is going to open up ahead. There's a gate what looks like a vista of parkland beyond. Maybe this is where the big house is. Aha! Oh yes, here it is, on the left. Wow. Gosh, that's very imposing. I'm looking at a red brick three-storey house I looked a bit online and um, the third story was added by the Victorians and so was the porch. And originally it was a manor house in the 14th century and it was bought by a chap who unexpectedly inherited 
huge lands and estates after a really baroque series of deaths. Um, he wasn't set to inherit anything. He wasn't anyone at all. And then this bizarre chain of events left him uh, a really massive landowner at a really young age. And he bought this manor house and, um, and it was turned into the red brick Tudor form um, in, in Tudor times. And then it, since then it's passed through lots and lots of different hands. Uh, it hasn't stayed in the same family at all. Um, and the Victorians fiddled around with it and it was bomb damaged and, and repaired then as well. Pevsner doesn't think much of it, from what I can make out. Um, but it is a really interesting example of the, the kind of big houses that are all over Suffolk. As I pass in front of the house, the very lightest kind of rain has begun to sift down, the kind that you barely notice but that gets you very wet. And a small flock of birds just flew overhead, finches, I think. It's the time of year when birds begin to form flocks for winter. My guest this week is the best-selling author and Cumbrian hill farmer James Rebanks, author of The Shepherd's Life and now English Pastoral and Inheritance, which comes out on September the 3rd. James and I first got in contact um, after I wrote a rave review of his first book and he got in touch to say that I'd got something wrong. Um, but despite that, we've forgiven each other, I think. And I've come to really value James for the way that he uses his voice to speak up for his community, but in a, in a really non-tribal way. He's not about rural people versus townies or farmers versus conservationists. And that's really important right now. And it's, it's something that's really evident in his new book. English pastoral is moving and it's important. It's a blend of memoir and advocacy. And it's a call to arms to, to other farmers and to the rest of us. Nature writing here reflects wider society in that it's got a real blind spot when it comes to agricultural landscapes. And when farming is discussed, the tone is often one of farmer bashing, and that's something I've got absolutely no time for. The fact that there is this disconnect isn't anyone's fault, but it is our responsibility to change it, I think. English Pastoral does vital work in helping us understand why farmers were forced to make the decisions that they did, and how we can all support them in making changes that we now know I desperately needed. It rained last night and all above us and all around me are the clouds. I've just taken, uh, walked some of my Herdwick sheep back to the heath on the fell after taking the lambs off them a week ago. They've settled now and they go back, been right up near where the, the sort of cloud line is and some of those sheep have wandered up into the clouds. And up there, we did a huge uh, peat bog restoration project on our common about a year ago. And yeah, it's starting to look amazing. So we wetted up many of the, many of the areas that have been drained historically and which have been spoiled. And that fell starting to change quite rapidly, actually, um, as a result of that care. Yeah, you can see in the distance in the sunshine, I can see lots of clouds rising off the, the fells all around us. I see the becks tumbling down off those Lake District fells down to the valley floor. And back down there is my farm. I see there's a patchwork of fields down there. 
And that's that small farm in the Little District is my inheritance, not just mine personally, but mine as a family. But it's, I think it's symptomatic of all of our inheritance. You look across these landscapes and you realise that, yeah, we've all done harm. We've all undone things that were value, spoiled things that were beautiful. And I, I believe sincerely we can make things better. We can put things back together. One of the great thrills and the joys of my life is to be part of my community in this moment in time because so many of my farming friends are rising to that challenge. There's over a million trees been planted in the 13 valleys of the Lake District in the last five years, according to the Woodland Trust. And several of my neighbours are building ponds and re-wiggling rivers and putting, restoring traditional hedgerows and restoring as we have our surviving upland hay meadows, which are incredibly rare. Uh, our hay meadows have over 100 species of plants in them. And my whole life really is devoted to this little valley and to do my small part of caring for it alongside my neighbours, trying to put back the wetlands and the willowy scrub, trying to put back the ponds, till someday perhaps there's beavers putting, in a man-made way, rebuilding some of those habitats, putting the river habitat strips, sort of riparian, habitat strips back in so they stretch back up to the wild fell above us the fell above us is wild it's a national trust project and is wilding with ponies there as proxy grazers and yeah trying to graze our fields and our meadows in ways that have much longer periods of recovery so the flowers can flower and seed and they can be much more than sort of just green uh, monoculture they can they can be really diverse well-managed pastures and meadows and i i'm full of hope I don't, think, I don't think everything's lost. I think farming people can rise to these challenges, that we can make our countryside way, way better. We can't do that in an isolated bubble. We can't do it by our own will alone, but we can do it with other people's help, your help, and I'm deeply hopeful. Uh, I know there's lots to be depressed about, but I'm hopeful that we can make it better. across open parkland and being really surprised at the diversity of wildflowers under my feet and there's also evidence of cattle grazing I haven't seen any um, which is a really good thing and this estate is part of a large project called Wilderness Reserve um, that's aiming to manage this part of Suffolk for wildlife and there's a wider project too called Wild East which is asking people to pledge to manage their land in an environmentally friendly way with the aim of creating a huge tract of land that's being well managed for conservation. And I'm, I'm really interested. I'm interested in the, the language and the words that are being used suddenly that were kind of verboten before, like rewilding. And I'm interested in who's using them because these projects are being led by big landowners, people you'd expect to be quite traditional. And that's a really interesting shift. I hope that these projects deliver tangible benefits and aren't just a way to feel good about having enormous property holdings. We'll see. But owning a lot of land is an opportunity to do enormous good. We shouldn't forget that. The most exciting conservation project in the UK at the moment is on the Nep estate, of course, in Sussex. Yeah, there's lots of big dried cow pats here. 
and just, I mean, I'm not brilliant at wildflowers, but this is really species rich around me. Oh, and you know what I can see is yellow rattle. Now that's interesting. I suspect that's been planted to keep the grass down because it's parasitic on grass roots and that will encourage more floral diversity. Very good. I like it. Okay, we've got another gate to go through. Scout, come. Sit. Sit. Thank you. Wait. Go on then. Scout's doing some digging. She's found a molehill with an interesting smell in it. So she's digging it and sniffing it in very deeply. 250 years ago, Gilbert White was noticing many of the same seasonal phenomena around him that we are now. And in 1782, it seems it was also very wet. In 1774, he notes that wheat begins to grow. There was no autumn sown crops then. So what I think he means is that the grains had started sprouting from the ears because of the wet weather. August the 31st, 1779. Spitting rain with wind all day. Wheat begins to grow. Several nectarines rot on the trees. Peaches rot. Plums burst and fall off. August the 31st, 1780. The season is so dry that no truffle hunter has yet tried my brother's grove. August the 31st, 1781. Began to use endives, which are large and well blanched. No swifts. We search the eaves to no purpose. In searching the eaves for the young swifts, we found in a nest two callow dead swifts on which had been formed a second nest. These nests were full of the black shining wing cases of parasites. August the 31st, 1782. Began to turn the horses into the great meadow. There is a fine head of grass. In the month of August, there fell eight inches and 28 hundreds of rain. August the 31st, 1783. Tremendous thunderstorm in London. Timothy the tortoise begins to frequent the border under the fruit wall for the sake of warmth. August the 31st, 1787. Young hirundines cluster on the dead boughs of the walnut tree. August the 31st, 1789 gathered a bushel basket of well-grown cucumbers, 238 in number. August the 31st, 1790. Farmer Spencer's wheat rick, when it was near finished, parted and fell down. We're passing through the big area of open parkland in front of the house, which I think was last sold in 2013. I don't know who lives there now. When I first moved to Suffolk, um, I really noticed the fact that there were so many big houses um, occupied by big landowning families. And it felt quite feudal to me until someone pointed out that it's exactly the same in London where I've moved from. Um, it's just a bit less visible. And in fact, 
I found when I moved to the first village I lived in here, I was surprised to find that I was really glad that our big house was still occupied by the same family and, and wasn't um, lived in by, you know, two days a year by a rock star or a Russian oligarch or had been turned into dentists and a doctor's surgery and what have you. For me, I've got a real conflict between my kind of socially progressive uh, instincts and some much more traditionalist and small C conservative instincts as well that really value tradition and history and um, that conflict plays out all the time inside me and it's one I don't really feel I need to resolve I think it's okay to think two things at the same time if you can tolerate the discomfort of it as I'm walking past this huge country pile What's at the back of my mind a lot at the moment is the fact that um, my siblings have been going through my dad's house ready for sale. Dad died in January. And there isn't going to be much to inherit because we decided that we would use what there was to pay for dad's care. Something he would have hated, but it was the right thing to do. What I have at the moment are a couple of ornaments from mum and dad's time in India and a vase, and a box of stuff from my childhood that feels radioactive and I haven't really been able to look at yet. But of course there's a much bigger inheritance as well, the things that mum and dad gave us in terms of our worldview and our strengths and our experiences growing up, that kind of in intangible inheritance. And some of it's been incredibly valuable. They taught me resilience and they gifted me an interest in nature and an interest in books and lots of other things. Some of it hasn't been so helpful. And I think one of the tasks of being an adult is to make visible to yourself the things that you have inherited, not just from your origin family but from the society you grew up in then you can decide what's valuable and you want to keep and what's unhelpful or untrue or might be holding you back the first task is to make it visible because a lot of this stuff it's just it's just reality when you're growing up you don't question it fish can't see the water in its bowl so that's the first part of the job some of what we inherit from our parents will be valuable wisdom. Some of it might be prejudice and blind spots and wounds. And some of it might have been valuable for them, but might not be for us anymore because we live in a different world. And I try and remind myself when I have fears for the younger people in my life that the world they're growing into isn't the world in which I live. And the outcomes for people of my age and my generation will be different than they are for them. I'm passing by a bramble bank 
in which there is issuing the faint cheeping of a small bird, and I don't know what it is. The scout's gone to investigate. She's stuck her head right into the brambles. I can only see her, her bum and her tail. Who are you? Oh, there you are. Hello, who are you? Are you a female yellowhammer? You're a little bunting of some kind. I sent my Times Nature Notebook for August 2016 from Dorset, the place where for many years in a row I watched summer give way to autumn. The Times Nature Notebook, August 2016. August again, and I'm back in Dorset for my annual dog-sitting fortnight. At the end of my friend's garden runs a tributary of the River Stour, slow and deep between overgrown banks. One of the great pleasures of my time here is to sit on the little wooden jetty under an overhanging beach and do nothing for an hour but watch the water slip slowly by. Sometimes something happens. A fish rises and ripples the surface, perhaps a grayling or brown trout. A kingfisher calls peep, then flushes past, glinting. A bright-eyed brown rat investigates the exposed roots of an alder on the other bank. Most of the time, though, there is just the cold, slow-moving river bearing the odd dead leaf or feather, the contented notes of a wood pigeon from somewhere high above, and the light sparkling on the water and dappling the undersides of the leaves. My breathing slows, and perhaps my heart. My attention seems to be distilled and focused by the water, rather than its usual distracted scatter. It isn't meditation, I don't think, because my focus is keenly outward, but I'm sure every angler will recognise the feeling I describe. Settled summer weather has finally given way for most of us to wind and rain, and according to the Met Office, autumn is not far away on the 1st of September, though astronomical autumn won't be with us until the equinox, still a month away. In the garden here, the exotic incomers, like globe thistles, crocosmia, tiger lilies and agapanthus, have brought some late summer colour to the beds. But on my daily dog walks, it's clear our native plants and wildlife know the year is on the turn. Most wildflowers are over. The nettles are limp and spent, and the thistles crowned with gouts of pewter down. There is little or no birdsong to be heard, and sloes and hawthorn berries are colouring in the hedges. In the little orchard down by the river, the discovery apples blush ruby red. A Suffolk cultivar, it was bred to ripen early. The others here, including West Country varieties, Malcolm Russet, Slack McGirdle and Bridgewater Pippin, are still some way behind. Perhaps autumn will come in by degrees, as the apples do, rather than arriving overnight. Perhaps summer will prove to have some life left in it yet. Well, I've been following a path across a stubble field, or two stubble fields now, um, and it just seems to have petered out and disappeared. So you can hear I'm really quite far from the main road now. It's nice and quiet here. But I think I'm going to turn back. It's quite hard going underfoot because of the, 
the recent rain. In my village, we're on sand, but here, this is the Suffolk Claylands. Um, and this kind of clay used to be referred to as loving because it clung to your boots. The poem this week is Cockade by the ecologist, editor and Romany poet David Morley. And it's from his new collection, Fury, which is out now from Carcanet. And before he reads it, just to let you know that yog is the Romany word for campfire. Cocade. Dad, why were worms made? Boy, so moles might live. And you and me live by trapping moles. Stabbing their berry noses on barbed wire where they flap and drip through winter on winter. Felt souls. Had I time or mind to consider the blameless creatures we have bagged and spite, I may come to thinking our living too costly for half their slaughter. Let us not go circling questions, as though one thing feeds another. Nothing I know in the woodland gnaws on questions. Sling be my mallet and pegs, and let us stake our traps so. So, my father bent his soul among leaf mould, tapped, turned, and tightened his traps, but reached out one hand to me, sighing, Son, we shall not gain by knowing. Let us spring wide the jaws of our gins, bide quietly by our yog, and wait out this night's frost together. When he had done, he lifted his hat, swept its cockade about him, saluting one by one the snare holes where my questions slept.